text for this afternoon. It's the word of the Lord as it's summarized in the Heidelberg Catechism. We're going to look at Lord's Day 34, question and answer 94 and 95. You can find that on page 551 on the Book of Praise. Question 94. What does the Lord require in the first commandment? That for the sake of my very salvation, I avoid and flee all idolatry, witchcraft, superstition, and prayer to saints or to other creatures. Further, that I rightly come to know the only true God, trust in him alone, submit to him with all humility and patience, expect all good from him only, and love, fear, and honor him with all my heart. In short, that I forsake all creatures rather than do the least thing against his will. Then question 95, what is idolatry? Idolatry is having or inventing something in which to put our trust instead of or in addition to the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. After the sermon, we'll sing Psalm 116, stanza 1, 7, 8, and 9, and we'll do so standing if you're able. Beloved in Christ, sometimes we may feel the need to get back to the basics, to simplify and refocus, because life can get complicated. There are so many things going on and we're pulled in many directions. There's family time, work commitments, church activities. There's finances to take care of, projects that are on the go and meetings to attend. Maybe I shouldn't remind you about this on a Sunday. Today's a day for resting, not fretting about work and other things. That's one of the blessings of the Lord's Day, having a day to open the word and get back to the basics, to simply adore God our Savior and be refreshed in the purpose of our life here on earth. So let's get to the heart of the matter. What does God really from, want from you, his child? How can you bring him the most pleasure, the highest honor? This calling is something to reflect on and to be busy with. Even as you drive to work again tomorrow morning, or as you open your books again at school, or as you clear away the breakfast dishes, it's something to think about as life crowds in on your days. What are we here for? And the first commandment instructs us. God tells us clearly what he requires. Put him first. Love God best. Trust in him alone. In all of life, that's our high calling and our main purpose. And I preach God's word to you on this theme from Lord's Day 34. Your top priority, love the Lord your God. We'll see three things. Love God for all that he is. Love God with everything you are. Love God wherever you go. Any good relationship requires you to really know the other person. For instance... That's what a young man and a young woman are working on when they're dating. They're getting to know each other, becoming familiar with each other's character, gifts, flaws, likes and dislikes. Through knowledge comes closeness, intimacy. It's the same with our relationship with God. To walk close with God every day, to trust in God, to please God, we need to know him. That's the first positive requirement in this commandment. After telling us to avoid and flee all idolatry, 
The Catechism says we must rightly come to know the only God. To love God first and best, we need to know him, his characters, priorities, his will. So who is God? How do we know him? Well, daily we can dive into scripture. That's where God reveals himself. For instance, consider our reading from Deuteronomy 6. There Moses is preaching to God's people before they embark on the final leg of their journey across the Jordan and into the promised land. In verse 4, he wants to get their attention. He says, hear, O Israel. He's saying this is vital. If there's any take-home lesson today, Moses is saying, then this is it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We've heard this text before, sometimes together with the Ten Commandments. The Israelites always gave this verse a very prominent place. They took this passage as foundational, where it even became something like their creed or a confession of faith. They call these verses the Shema, from the Hebrew word in verse 4, Shema, or give ear, listen up. You have to know this. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. This punchy phrase means in the first place that God is the only God, the true God. He is the God who is without comparison and contradiction. The Israelites had witnessed his greatness many times. Just think back four decades before, standing on the shore of the Red Sea, having just seen all the hosts of Egypt destroyed. Israel sang together, Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. We can find that in Exodus 15. Who is like the Lord? Not anyone, not anything. God stands alone. By his mighty, mac, by mighty acts in Egypt, God showed that he is without rival. For the Egyptians had their gods too. These were gods reputed to do amazing things like making the Nile to flood so that the crops could grow. But it had become brutally obvious how these gods could in fact do nothing against the Lord. The Lord is the one and only. This is a truth with real consequences. In our life, there can be no rivals for our worship and love no close seconds, just behind God, no backup plans as our real security instead of God. Only he is worthy of our trust. This is a reminder we always need, isn't it? Together with frequent warnings against idolatry. What is idolatry? Well, we just read it this afternoon. It's having or inventing something in which to put our trust instead of, or in addition to, the only God who has revealed himself in his word. All too soon, we're ready to let something else push God out of top place. So Moses gives that warning too. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are all around you. For the Lord your God is a jealous God among you, he says in Deuteronomy 6. He is jealous. Now we usually think of jealousy as a bad thing, like if I'm jealous of someone else's nice sports car. That's sinful coveting, because that vehicle doesn't belong to me. But you can also be jealous in a good way when something is rightfully yours. Like if I am jealous for the attention of my wife, I have a just claim on her loyalty and love because that's what we promised to give each other. God is jealous in the sense that he is possessive about what is rightfully his. As the only God, as our creator, and now also as our father, he wants our obedience, loyalty, and love. So don't go after other gods. Moses says, 
Moses wasn't a fortune teller, but he had a bad feeling about how it was going to go in Canaan once Israel settled in. Canaan had a well-stocked buffet of religious idolatry. There was a God for every occasion. For times of drought, there was the God of rain. For times of conquest, the God of war. For a good harvest, the God of fertility. Always another God. It can be like how we're tempted by a range of different idols at different times. Call them the gods of the moment. On Friday night, we might venerate the God of the good times. We're willing to sacrifice everything on the altar of having fun, being with friends, or being entertained. Or in a season of financial blessing, we slip into resting into the God of material security. Or during our busy weeks, we might be bowing before the God of work and productivity. Probably in any moment of life, another idol lurks just behind the corner. Because Satan is never idle. There's no end to the God that our hearts can run after and cling to. But this is our confession. God is one. He is unrivaled, never surpassed. This means that to love other gods is to love, in fact, nothing. It's to love a nobody. In themselves and next to God, our idols have no standing or power. Despite all of our devotion and investment, they won't provide us with the blessing or the lasting reward because they're empty. But the Lord is one. That expresses a second thing too, God's unity. He's not made up of many parts, divided in his purpose or inconsistent. He's one, unified in all his attributes. The Belgic Confession says in Article 1 that God is simple, an undivided, unbroken, uncompromising God, an uncompromised God. Think of the comfort that we have in this truth. God's perfect unity means that when he speaks, he'll never go against his word. He'll never have second thoughts. Neither can anyone in all the universe contradict him. God is perfectly dependable. He's working for our good with his whole being, without reserve or hesitation. When God saves us in the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, there's no one who can snatch us from his hand. Our God is the Lord, the one who is who he is, never changing. He won't become less than he is today, but he will always be great. God's dominion over creation won't ever decline, but he will always be the Lord of all. God won't ever be distracted for his attention for us, his covenant people, but he will be forever constant and true. This is knowledge that's the basis for a good relationship with God. When you know this about God, when you really treasure his truth, it can inspire a confidence in him. Like how trust develops between those two friends as they slowly get acquainted, as they see each other react in different situations, as they demonstrate trustworthiness. Rightly knowing God, we may trust in him alone. Such a generous God, so dependable, so almighty, doesn't deserve divided allegiance. God isn't worthy of a lukewarm attention. He is jealous for your loyalty, for your priority, for your wholehearted desire to walk with him. He deserves it. So God is jealous for your love. Is that what you're giving him? In just a few words, the catechism gives us our life's work. What does God require of us? That I love, fear, and honor him with all my heart. 
That's an assignment big enough to keep us going till the day we die. Love God with everything that you are. As Moses exhorts us, you shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Don't underestimate what a radical teaching this was for Israel. It sounds strange, but the command to love didn't really fit the pattern of religion in that time. Does God want love? The pagans of Egypt, or the pagans of Canaan, many people still today, think of their gods in quite a different way. The thinking is that what a god really wants is flattery, bribes, and gifts. What does God require of you? He wants expensive offerings, costly presents, notable sacrifice. It was less relationship and more transaction. Give something, receive something. With the right gift, you could bribe a god, sway him to your advantage. If you were generous with him, a god could be moved to act on your behalf. So what's love got to do with it? To be sure, Israel fell for the same bad theology because transactions are always easier than relationships. Israel knew the Lord wanted love, but he also said he wanted sacrifice. And material things are simpler to give than an undivided heart. Just offer a priestly certified animal. Bring some grade A barley to the temple and all is well. And for us, this can remain a challenge. We still find it difficult to give God a broken and contrite spirit. That takes humility on our part. Being honest about how we sin And it means daily repenting, coming to God with empty hands. But if I only have to offer him the right monetary gift or perform some acceptable activity, well then I'm okay, can be our thinking. It's relatively easy to figure out what other people expect of us and then reckon that it's the same for God. Go to church like I should, answer with what I think the safe answer is on the home visit. But is there a heart beneath all of that performance? Underneath, is there still a heart that loves? Because God's demand cuts through every good appearance. Again, what does God require of you? In Mark 12, the man talking with Jesus was quite correct. He said to love God with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. That is total commitment, heart understanding, soul, and strength. What does it mean if you were to love God with all of your heart? We've learned before that our heart is the center of our person. Your heart sets the pace, determines your word, giving shape to your thoughts, numbering your priorities. So make the heart right. God commands that it be filled with an affection for him. We love the Father and delight in Christ and enjoy our fellowship with the Spirit from the heart. This is echoed by what God commands in Deuteronomy 6, verse 6. These words which I command you today shall be in your hearts. Putting his words in our hearts means that we don't just have a vague idea of what God has said, but we keep his will right in the center of our lives. Take his promises, turn them over in your mind daily, and treasure them up. If your heart is well-stocked with God's word, your love for him will surely grow. Love God with all your heart and with all understanding, or with all of your mind, Mark 12, verse 33. To love God for who he is requires us to set our mind on things above. God wants us to dwell on his mighty works. Think about how God has created and saved and protected and judged. 
Dwell on his greatness so that you can love him with your mind. And then even in the way that we think about other things, about our job or other people or our troubles, God desires that we bend our minds towards him so that it becomes an instinct, a sanctified way of thinking. What would God say about this would be a thought we would have. How does the Lord's character change how I lead my life? This is what we should think about day by day. And then we should love God with all of our soul. If your heart is the command center of your life, then your soul is your whole existence on this earth as an individual. It's the whole blend of abilities and talents, duties and responsibilities, blessings and burdens that God has given you, your person here on earth. So God says take all that you have, all that you are, and love him with every bit of it. This kind of love takes great energy. That's why it also says love the Lord with all of your strength. Loving God is a great joy, but it's going to take effort. It will take your strength. Haven't you found that to be true of any relationship that you're in? It requires work. It takes time. There can be those easy days and weeks, of course, but for the long haul, any relationship needs you to put into it all of your strength. So too for God. Loving him won't just happen. You won't stumble into having a closer bond with God where it happens without you really noticing or doing anything to stimulate it. When we become more devoted to prayer and spend more time exploring his word, when we press on to lay hold of that which Christ Jesus has laid hold on you, that's what we're called to do. Love God with all of your strength, with effort and focus each day. And love him wherever you go. Where are you going to be this week? Probably in many different places. Maybe in the boardroom, at a shop, at school, at the dentist, at home. And when we honor our first priority to love God above all, we need to think about how this will shape our conduct wherever we go, wherever we happen to be. On Sundays, it can be good to reflect occasionally on the triple T question. What is the triple T question? Well, it's this. What will you be doing this time tomorrow? How will you be living out your love for God? It's good to ask that because on Sunday, everything can seem pretty easy. Predictable, safe, sanctified. Going to church, having fellowship, resting from work. Then comes Monday and Tuesday and the sudden challenges of office politics, school deadlines, stressed out households. How will you be loving God at this time tomorrow? Will you still be trusting in God, submitting to him, loving, fearing, and honoring him? How will you show it? Moses, too, touches on how love for God shapes all of life wherever we are. He begins in the most obvious place, the home. Take God's commandments, Moses says, and teach them diligently to your children. Literally, he says, repeat them to your children. And that word's well chosen. It takes a while for children to learn, and there's a lot to learn. So we've got to work at it, teach them, and then teach them again. Moses says about the commandments, talk of them when you sit in your house, 
when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. This is making God's word the subject of natural, everyday conversation. Not just on Sunday, not just at devotional time, but anytime. And our love for God doesn't only shape those conversations at home between parents and children, but also between husband and wife. We demonstrate our love for God in the way we speak to our spouse during the week. How we lead our wife with wisdom and care and consideration. How we help our husband with love and support. Loving God is something we take with us always. Think about the interactions we have with other people. Does our love for God come up in conversation when we're together as fellow believers? Does our love for God show when we interact with people who don't know him? Speak of the things that are most important to you wherever you are. Then Moses says this of the commandments. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Affix the Lord's word to your hand, to your forehead. Well, why there? The hand is the symbol of action while the forehead stands for our direction and intent. For it's to be the first thing we think about, the first question we ask, what is God's will? What does the Lord's word say about this? That means the word must be central to our life as church. Bind these commandments as a sign on your hand and between your eyes. You might know how the Jews took this verse literally. They heard the command to attach the law to their persons, so they made up something called phylacteries. Maybe you can Google it when you get home, see what they look like. They're little boxes in which were kept short passages from the law written out in tiny script and they wore them on the forehead and around the arm, binding them with their leather bands. In Jesus' time, this had become just another religious show, and he criticized the Jews for doing everything for people to see, making their phylacteries wide, it says in Matthew 23, verse 5. Today, too, you might have an inspiring text of Scripture hanging in your house. You might wear a Christian symbol like a cross or a dove on a golden chain around your neck, or you have the Bible on your phone and a Bible verse as your email signature. And these can be good things. But we do need to live out that message. Behind God's word, bind God's word to your head and hand. By our holy life today and at this time tomorrow and the next day and the next, God wants his people to show this is who I am. I'm a child of God. I love my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm going to listen to him, trust him in everything. God wants it to be so obvious that everyone passing by can see it, that here is someone firmly committed to God. Can that be said of us? Do people see our hands and our heads and from all of our conduct that we love the Lord? In the midst of everything else going on in our lives, Amidst all the busyness and the bustle, is this truth still able to shine through, radiant and clear, that our top priority is to love the Lord our God? For that's the heart of the matter. What's the purpose of your short time here on earth? That you love the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. For all that God is, and for all that God has done in Christ, let us love him with everything we are, and love him wherever we go. Amen.